Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Nick Olick, Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series and we'll be discussing eye and eyelid reconstruction. Nick, do you want to get us started off with a discussion of some of the anatomy? Let's do it. So starting with layers of the eyelid, uh, we have the conjunctiva, Mueller's muscle, the levator muscle, orbital fat, septum, the roof or uh, retroorbicularis oculi fat pad, uh, orbicularis oculi itself, and then the skin. There's an anterior and posterior lamella. The anterior lamella consists of skin and orbicular, orbicularis oculi muscle. And the posterior lamella includes the tarsoligamentous sling consisting of the tarsal plate, medial and lateral canthal tendons, and the capsulopapebral fascia and conjunctiva. The orbital septum or the middle lamella separates the anterior and posterior lamella. There are seven bones of the orbit and the medial orbital wall formed mainly by the ethmoid bone. Uh, Anophthalmos and diplopia can occur if greater than 5% of volume uh, is added or increased postoperatively after surgery to the orbit. Uh, the lacrimal bone, the palatine bone, the lesser wing of the sphenoid also contribute to this medial orbital wall. The orbital floor consists of the maxilla medially and the zygoma anteriorly. There are several fat compartments that we think about uh, around the eye and eyelid. And the fat pads are posterior to the septum and anterior to the levator. Two fat pads in the upper lid are the central and nasal fat pads and three fat pads in the lower lid, the medial, central, and lateral fat pads. The inferior oblique muscle is found between the medial and central fat, fat compartment of the lower eyelid. And this is something that we are routinely tested on. Uh, this receives innervation from the oculomotor nerve and moves the eye in external rotation and elevation. It's the most commonly injured muscle during transconjunctival lower eyelid blepharoplasty. The inferior oblique can be entrapped in orbital floor fractures and is a reason we are commonly consulted. Uh, in order to test this, you have the patient uh, look up to the ceiling and outward. Voluntary eyelid animation uh, comes from the zygomatic branch of the facial nerve, which innervates the extracanthal orbicularis, while involuntary eyelid movement and closure, like blinking, comes from the buccal branch of the facial nerve, and this innervates the inner canthal, canthal orbicularis. So where that dichotomy is something that likes to come up on uh, test questions as well. The common canaliculus enters the lacrimal sac posterior to the medial canthal tendon, and the medial canthal tendons are formed by pretarsal muscles and originate anterior and superior to the lacrimal crest. The levator lies superior to the medial canthal tendon and the nasolacrimal duct drains beneath the inferior turbinate. During eye closure, the lacrimal puncta closes due to forced positioning and tears are milked from medial to lateral. Uh, the canaliculi is shortened and the sac is opened. Some innervation and sensation to the eye, the infraorbital nerve uh, innervates the lower eyelid the lateral papebal branch from the infraorbital nerve supplies the superior lateral portion of the upper eyelid. The infratrochlear nerve innervates the medial portions of the upper and lower eyelids, and the lacrimal nerve from V1 innervates the upper eyelid. Uh, importantly, the zygomatical facial branch pr provides sensation to the lateral fat pad of the lower eyelid. The orbital malar ligament is the anatomic basis of the tear trough, and this is a osteocutaneous ligament arising from the medial portion of the maxilla. This is released to access the midface or subauricular fat redraping through a transconjunctival approach. Fillers should be placed inferior to the tear trough ligament when placed in this area, and placing superiorly serves to emphasize, emphasize the lower eyelid fat. 
Lockwood's ligament supports the globe and the orbital septum containing the orbital contents. Something else we're commonly tested on are the makeup of tears. This is a trilaminar fluid. Mucin secreting goblet cells form the precorneal layer of tears, and this promotes dispersion of the overlying aqueous layer. The aqueous or middle layer is secreted by the lacrimal gland, and this is composed of water and proteins. And this promotes osmotic regulation and control of infectious agents. And the, the meobian glands prevent evaporation of tears, and this is the outer lipid layer. And this function can lead to dry eye. So there's uh, several physical exam maneuvers we do during our assessment of the eye and eyelid. Um, Hannah, do you want to go through some of those? Sure. So first is the marginal reflex distance, and this is the distance in millimeters from the light reflex to the patient's cornea to the level of the upper eyelid margin with the patient in primary gaze. So the normal is greater than 2.5 millimeters. Less than 2.5 millimeters is evidence of ptosis. In order to measure exophthalmos, you use the anterior border of the globe and the most anterior portion of the lateral rim as your two references. And inophthalmos is defined as less than 14 millimeters and exophthalmos is greater than 18 millimeters of those two points. The next is the eyelid snapback test and greater than six millimeters is considered lax. And you can do a, a wedge resection if there is positive canthal tilt or canthopexy. For a negative canthal tilt though, you really should do a canthopexy. Uh, you can also perform orbicular repositioning for minimal laxity of one to two millimeters. The intercanthal distance is best approximated by the orbital fissure width. And the Schirmer test evaluates tear production and tear breakup time. Next, we'll discuss Herring's law. And this says that there is equal and simultaneous innervation of both levator muscles. So if where there's one eye that has ptosis, the brain signals that both eyelids should raise, and this can actually hide ptosis in the contralateral eye. To test this, you can use phenylephrine drops into the mortotic eye, and this will stimulate Mueller's muscle to raise the eyelid. In turn, the afferent signals to raise the eyelids decrease, and if the contralateral eyelid falls over the next 10-15 minutes, then you'll likely need to perform a bilateral ptosis repair. Um, you can also use a patch to test the same phenomenon. So Bell's phenomenon is upward and outward movement of the eye on eye closing, and this is a protective mechanism. Absence of Bell's phenomenon can predispose to corneal ulcers after blepharoplasty. Horner's syndrome is blepharoptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. The apex of the brow should be at the lateral limbus of the eye in forward gaze. And then just of note, thyroid disease, uh, you can often see patients with proptosis, diplopia, puffy or swollen eyes and injected eyes, as well as uh, eyelid lag. Okay, we'll go through a few definitions. Blepharochalasis is thin upper eyelid tissue, and this can cause painless edema of the eyelids and can result in a baggy appearance and may be associated with levator dehiscence. Dermatochalasis is loosening of the eyelid skin with fat protrusion. Blepharophimosis is a form of congenital ptosis, and it presents with ptosis, telecanthus, phimosis, and large epicanthal folds with epicanthal inversus. 
You can correct this with a Z-plasty or transnasal wiring of the medial canthal tendons. And you can per, uh, correct the ptosis with a frontalis suspension. Epiblepharon is when you have vertical eyelashes as a result of excess pretarsal muscle and skin overriding the margin of the eyelid. And this often affects the lower lids. You should observe this for several years. And if it does not correct, you can shorten the anterior lamella. And finally, entropion is inward rotation of the eyelid margin. So the next topic that we will discuss is ptosis. And this is defined by how much of the upper limbus is covered by the lid margin at rest and at forward gaze. And so this is usually one to two millimeters. So the first uh, flavor of ptosis is senile or involutional ptosis. And this is common in the elderly and it involves progress progressive attenuation of the levator aponeurosis, otherwise known as levator dehiscence. And signs that the ptosis is due to involutional ptosis are an elevated tarsal crease of greater than seven millimeters, thinned upper eyelid skin, lid droop with a downward gaze. So the treatment is levator advancement or plication to the tarsal plate. And you should also evaluate for skin excision or blepharoplasty at the same time. So the most important consideration in all forms of ptosis is the levator function. So good levator function is greater than 10 millimeters. Uh, and then if you have, and this is considered mild to moderate ptosis. And the treatment for this degree of ptosis is just repositioning of the levator to the tarsal plate. So every three millimeters of levator advancement results in one millimeter of elevation. To achieve proper contour of the levator advancement, you should place the primary lifting suture at the vertical plane of the mid pupil. So if there is good levator function with less than two millimeters of ptosis, then you can perform a Fasanella servant procedure. And this uses the posterior conjunctival approach to correct mild ptosis without levator disinsertion. And plication only works if the levator is not dehissed. This does not remove excess skin or eyelid fold, but the levator aponeurosis reinsertion can include skin resection. If there is good levator function and the patient does have response to phenylephrine, you can perform a molarectomy. If the levator response is between five to 10 millimeters, you should perform a levator resection and advancement. And if the levator response is less than five millimeters or very poor, then you should perform a frontalis suspension. Um, for this, you can use autologous fasciolata, and this has the lowest long-term recurrence rates and the lowest complication rates. Congenital ptosis is most commonly a result of localized myogenic dysgenesis, and most causes are idiopathic. You should obtain an MRI to rule out uh, nerve compression from external forces like a tumor, particularly when it presents acutely or subacutely in a child under one. If there is good levator function and minimal ptosis, you can use the Fasanella, but this may alter lid contour. Uh, you can perform a Mueller resection for minimal ptosis, but it's difficult to achieve symmetry and you cannot make intraoperative corrections. Resection and advancement of the levator aponeurosis does allow for symmetry. However, you do need functioning levator of greater than five millimeters. Nick, do you want to take us through uh, some of the 
some of the blepharoplasty approaches? You got it. Uh, so blepharoplasty, we think about upper or lower blepharoplasty. Um, for the lower lid, you can do either a transconjunctival approach or a transcutaneous approach. The transconj blepharoplasty preserves the middle lamella or the septum and has a lower incidence of scleral show, but more difficult access to the lateral fat compartment. This can be used for fat pad reduction and will not violate the septum. Uh, deep to the septum, the incision should be placed four to five milliliters below the tarsal border or eight millimeters for the lid margin. You can release the tear trough ligament with this approach and visualization of the levator labii superiori indicates release of the tear trough. For the transcutaneous approach, this is much easier and more effective for blending the lid cheek junction and transposing fat. Lower eyelid laxity can be treated with a lower bluff and canthopexy, and this decreases the risk for ectropion. If the snap, snapback test is slow on the lower eyelid, you may perform a horizontal shortening of the lower eyelid and a canthopexy. A lateral canthoplasty treats lower eyelid laxity and protects against malposition. Greater than, for greater than six millimeters, use lateral cantholysis with canthoplasty, especially if, negative, if there's a negative tilt. You can also use a horizontal excision. For a mild eyelid laxity of one, two millimeters, you can do or orbicularis repositioning. Some of the complications of blepharoplasty. Um, in general, the most common complication uh, is asymmetry. Um, the most common complication in a lower bluff is lower eyelid malposition. And carrying the incision past the punctum in blepharoplasty can cause webbing of the nasal skin. Another complication is dry eye. Um, and when we think about patients that have had LASIK surgery, we have to consider this complication. So LASIK creates a corneal flap that interrupts the long ciliary nerves of the trigeminal nerve. This results in decreased sensation and corneal reflex arc. So you lose your compensatory blink. Therefore, we should wait six months after LASIK surgery prior to performing blepharoplasty. Another complication is ectropion. Uh, if the lower upper eyelid malposition and epiphora is diagnosed early in the postoperative period, massages are recommended. A uh, transconjunctival approach decreases the risk of lower eyelid malposition. Another complication is ectropion. Um, if the lower or upper eyelid malposition and epiphora is diagnosed early in the postoperative period, massages are recommended to address this. Uh, the transconjunctival approach decreases the risk of this lower eyelid malposition, and some studies have shown that this risk to be a, as low as 0%, uh, as opposed to the subciliary incision, with, which can be as high as 25%. Ectropion can be involutional due to horizontal laxity, citricical uh, due to vertical shortening of the anterior lamella or posterior lamella and septum, and neurogenic due to the paralysis of the orbicularis. Risks include a negative vector when the orbital rim is retro-positioned relative to the vertical plane of the cornea, excess skin resection, horizontal laxity of the tarsoligamentous sling, aggressive imbrication of the orbital septum, Graves' disease with exophthalmos, persistent edema, and hematoma. Scarring between the capsulopapibral fascia and the septum cause citricical ectropion in the lower lid. Involutional entropion and ectropion are distinguished by animation of the orbicularis oculi. This is caused by orbicularis dysfunction of the preceptal portion, disinsertion, and loss of eyelid support. Lower eyelid ectropion can be seen after a burn, and to address this, you can do a full thickness skin graft and release of the tissues. Uh, involutional ectropion or lax skin can be treated with canthoplasty and wedge excision, and neurogenic ectropion 
uh, can be treated with gold weights. Lateral compartment fullness after upper blepharoplasty is caused by descending of the lacrimal glands. Hyphema is traumatic hemorrhage into the anterior chamber of the eye, and this can result in increased intraocular pressure. And treatment includes acetazolamide and corticosteroid drops. Lagophthalmos is a complication of upper eyelid blepharoplasty. If the patient receives epinephrine or phenylephrine drops, which is an alpha adrenergic agonist, lagophthalmos may be a result of activation of Mueller's muscle. Central facial numbness after blepharoplasty or central forehead numbness is likely from the supratrochlear nerve. This courses through the corrugator and innervates the central forehead skin and the deep supraorbital supplies the forehead periosteum. Ptosis is common after blepharoplasty and common causes include postoperative edema of the eyelids and hemorrhage into Mueller's muscle. Complications typically resolve over time and the first line should be reassurance and observation with frequent follow-up examinations. Traumatic aponeurotic injuries after blepharoplasty can also cause this problem, um, leading to ptosis, iris shadow, or elevated tarsal crease. And this can be treated with early reattachment of the levator. Increased intraocular pressure from retrobulbar hematoma is a dreaded complication that can lead to blindness. And this is diagnosed after an orbital fracture repair or blepharoplasty or other uh, procedures around the orbit. A common presentation is steady, severe pain in the globe and orbit, which can have sparks and flashes in the visual fields. And this may appear as a window shade being pulled over the lower half of the visual field, as well as decreased range of motion of the eye and decreased visual acuity. Physical exam in an affected patient will show visual loss associated with a pupillary defect uh, loss of pupillary reaction to light. You can measure the increased pressure with a tonometer. Um, and you also want to get an ophthalmology uh, consult for sure. Yes. And treatment will involve a uh, lateral canfotomy to relieve the pressure and medication to reduce, reduce the pressure such as acetazolamide or mannitol. Hannah, do you want to take us to home with the nasolacrimal duct? Yes. So the keyword here is the Jones test. Um, so Jones 1, just know that this evaluates the lacrimal outflow under normal physiologic conditions, whereas Jones 2, uh, you ask the patient to expel the drainage from the pharynx, and no dye means there is a complete obstruction. And then a few last definitions. So obstruction at the canalicular level or proximal obstruction is treated with conjunctivo dacrocystostomy. Obliteration of the sac, you'll perform a conjunctivo rhinostomy. And intubation of the tear sac is dacrocystostomy. Conjunctivo rhinostomy is used in patients who have obliteration or absence of the tear sac. A few final topics. So blepharospasm is frequent blinking and squeezing of the eyelids, and this can be treated with administration of Botox. Botox-induced ptosis due to ptosis of the levator muscle is treated with alpha-adrenergic drops such as apraclonidine, and this is used to elevate Mueller's muscle. Botox prevents release of acetylcholine into the presynaptic uh, membrane, which we've mentioned on a few other episodes, but it is a very high-yield point. Medial canthal degloving injuries can result in telecanthus, ptosis, and epiphoria from canalicular injuries, and you should initially repair the telecanthus uh, and perform a canalicular repair followed by ptosis repair at three to six months. 
So that was a tough one, I think, a lot of information. Um, so feel free to review the outline on the website as well. Um, and good luck. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.